I now invite up Jeff Brown, who will share our reading this morning from poet Marianne Williamson. And the poem's called Our Deepest Fear. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we're liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So in June of 2009, the summer before my senior year in college, I was exploring the idea of going to graduate school for my master's in divinity. I was 20 years old. I was very serious about Unitarian Universalism. I was clear that I wanted to become a minister, but the question for me was when. That year, I went to our denomination's annual national gathering, General Assembly, in part to research theological schools, but my main goal was to talk to other young adults who were in ministry. You see, at the time, and still when I entered seminary, many people were becoming ministers much later in life, what people would call second career ministers. And first career ministers, people who were under 30 or so, were very much rarer. And the messages that I got through subtle and overt comments were that I should get some life experience first as though all of the years that I had lived up to that point were not somehow real, and I should wait a few years, but it wasn't clear exactly how long I should wait or for what. And so I wanted to hear from people who had become ministers in their 20s about what advice they had, what they thought of this idea of waiting or going in my early 20s, and what they thought I should wait for. I talked to several people that week, Many were helpful conversations, but the one who stands out the most was Michael. Now, Michael was another young adult who was maybe three or four years older than me. He was considering applying to seminary as well in the next year or two, and he caught wind that I was going, considering going to seminary and having these conversations. Fresh out of college, and he sat me down in the giant conference center cafeteria to say, look, I really don't think you should go to seminary. You are too young. You can't possibly be mature enough to be a minister. You really should wait a few years until you're older and more mature like me. <laughs> I was so angry. <laughs> he didn't know me at all. 
I hadn't asked him for his thoughts. He had completely cut down my dream, not to mention the mansplaining and the doublespeak of it all. He had completely cut down my dream as though he knew me better than I knew myself and better than those closest to me knew me. Six months later, in my senior year of college, I did apply to seminary, but when I did, I didn't tell a soul. Except, of course, the people that I had to ask to write recommendations for me. <laughs> but now that I was actually doing it, I was pursuing a dream and an intuition that I had that this was the right next step for me, that I belonged in seminary. Now that I was doing it, my heart felt tender and vulnerable, like a tiny fledgling, and I needed to protect and nurture it against the cold harshness of the world. I couldn't stomach the idea that I might be so vulnerable as to share that I had applied to seminary with anyone. What if I didn't get in? What if I was, wasn't good enough? What if I told someone that I had actually done it, I had actually taken the first step to become a minister to fulfill my dream, and they laughed at me? I was scared that I would be crushed, so it was better to keep it inside. For months, I kept quiet until I no longer could because I was about to start graduate school and I needed to make concrete plans like find housing. But I waited until I was accepted and I knew where I was going, and then I shared my news with a few close friends and then a few more, none of whom laughed, of course, none of whom made me feel like I wasn't worthy, like I wouldn't be enough all of whom believed in me and in my calling to be a minister. But that fear of not being believed in made me feel small, made me feel inadequate, inadequate and insecure. And this week, the question of belief and who to believe has been so present in our nation, and I have been sitting with what it means to be believed and to be believed in. And to be clear, let me say, I believe you, Dr. Ford. I believe you, survivors of sexual violence. It happens all too often that people are not believed of their experience of what is real and true. And their experience of what is real and true is discounted because they have less power, because they are young adults, because they are children, because they are women, because they are black, because they are brown because they are not citizens, because it's her word against his, because they must not remember correctly, because it must not have been how they remember it, because that wasn't what was meant by it, because they are blowing it out of proportion. And we know the effects of this kind of thinking and this kind of rhetoric, my friends. We know that this kind of discounting of real people's real experiences does real harm. And what it does is makes the person being discounted or disbelieved less than human. It says, your lived reality is not as important as the story I want to believe. This morning in our Wonder Box, Jessica shared the story of Snuffleupagus and, the characters of, and how the characters of Sesame Street came to believe Big Bird about Snuffleupagus's existence. But here's the background. From 1971, when Snuffleupagus debuted, until 1985, Snuffy would shuffle in and out of the frame just as Big Bird gathered others. Many of you are nodding, it was probably your era. 
just as others would, Big Bird would gather others to come meet his friend. And the producers intentionally left it very ambiguous as to whether Snuffy was Big Bird's imaginary friend or whether he was just shy and had bad timing and the adults were preoccupied. It was also an, an, a commentary on the adults being preoccupied and missing the small details, which is also an ongoing joke because Snuffy is not small. He's the most giant of the puppets. <laughs> So this joke, this running joke, went on for 14 years, playing with the concept of reality and imagination, which is a fine and normal thing for a puppet show to do, until the show's producers began to get feedback from, with a growing concern from educators and parents in the wake of news in the early 80s about child abuse. Big Bird, I learned, is supposed to be a projection of a six-year-old. And his implausible eyewitness testimony being disbelieved by the adults on the show might have real-life consequences and discourage kids from telling adults about their experiences for fear that the adults might ridicule or disbelieve them. So the producers decided that it was time to let this joke go, and it was essential to restore Big Bird's credibility Dr. Lawrence Rubin, a child psychologist who worked on the show, said in an interview, the writers took a real world concern and asked themselves, are we helping or hurting kids by keeping Snuffy in an imaginary closet? And do we have a moral imperative to respond to, the, to a real issue by changing something about the show? They decided that they did. Norman Stiles, the head writer of Sesame Street, said, we wanted kids to know that grown-ups will believe them. And so over the course of a two-year story arc, the entire, this show is incredible, folks. They just do so much research on everything in child development. The entire neighborhood of Sesame Street came to believe Big Bird, only some grown-ups at first and then others, and finally all of the adults in the neighborhood. And in the end, all of the adults apologize to Big Bird, and it ends with cast member Bob McGrath, McGrath telling Big Bird, from now on, we'll believe you whenever you tell us something. Being believed and being believed in can have real-world consequences. It can offer validation, healing, justice, can make us braver and more powerful. And most of all, it can allow us to be the most authentic versions of ourselves. The definition of authenticity, which Sarah found for me this week, is being worthy of acceptance or belief. And don't we all want to be worthy of acceptance? Don't we all want to be worthy of belief, of being believed in? It is a gift that we can offer to value it, uh, validate someone's authenticity, someone's worthiness of acceptance or belief. It has been my experience that the more a person believes me, the more I am able to be vulnerable. And the more I am able to be vulnerable, the more authentic I am able to be. And the more authentic I am able to be, the more I am able to be worthy of belief. It is a positive feedback loop between authenticity and vulnerability and belief. And I know the opposite is also true. The less I feel believed, the more I feel discounted by someone, the less I feel like I'm able to be my true self, and the more closed off I become, and the less vulnerable I can be. People sometimes ask me, oh, 
you're a Unitarian Universalist minister. Universalist, like you believe in everything, right? <laughs> Wrong. The Universalist part of our name actually comes from a historic affirmation in which some preachers declared that they believed in universal salvation, that all people, sinners and saints, were children of God, and that all would be reunited with God after death, that none would be condemned to suffer for eternity. And this, understandably, was scandalous to mainstream Christianity in the early 1800s and to the Christian doctrines at the time. So the Universalists began their own Universalist churches and a Universalist denomination, which then merged with our Unitarian ancestors. And over time, Unitarian Universalist theology has began to focus more and more on what happens on Earth in this lifetime, which is all we can know, and less and less on what happens after death. But this leaves us a legacy, and I believe that the legacy that we have inherited from our Universalist ancestors and faith, faith is still that of universal salvation. Because the meaning of the word salvation can also be understood as healing. They're very connected in their Greek, and when I look around, sometimes it feels like all I see are people and a world crying out for healing. In the end, we are seeking universal healing, healing of our bodies and our hearts and our spirits, healing that looks like love and justice and hope and safety and comfort healing for this broken and hurting world and its broken and hurting people. Friends, I believe we can offer one another healing when we truly hear each other into speech, when we love each other into being, and when we believe each other into authenticity. When we live into the interplay of believing one another and allowing for our own vulnerability and one another's vulnerability only when it is safe for us, we become more and more our authentic selves. In 2015, almost six years after the conversation with Michael in that convention center cafeteria, he and I, now colleagues, now both having gone to and finished our theological educations on opposite coasts. We happened to be at the same minister's conference in California, and I rolled my eyes when I saw him on the list. We, of course, were in the same workshop. And on the third day of the workshop, he came up to me at the end of the session and he said, Heather, can I talk to you for a minute? Sure, I said reluctantly. You may not remember this, he said, but several years ago, you and I were talking about going to seminary, and I really encouraged you not to go. I'm sorry. I'm really glad you didn't listen to me. I was wrong. I've seen the work you do, and I think you're a remarkable minister. I do remember that, I told him. Thank you for saying that. It means a lot. I can't say that we became fast friends or that I honestly really care what he thinks about me and my ministry because now, as a minister, I'm no longer the tender fledgling with a vulnerable dream. But his acknowledgement and his apology changed something for me that day. To know that he had carried it with regret for six years and that he was seeking to right the wrong, to be accountable for what he had said, 
It was healing for me to know that we were both people striving for wholeness, that the book was not closed, the end of the story was not yet written, and neither is mine and neither is yours, nor is our hurting, aching worlds. We might all become more authentic and more whole if we can offer these gifts of the Spirit to one another. So dear ones, beloved, in these times of political terror and systemic violence and exhaustion, in these days that ask us all too often to deny our own humanity and the humanity of our siblings, let us hold faith in one another as much as we can and in each other. Let us care for ourselves and for one another. Let us believe in ourselves and in one another. And in doing so, may we love ourselves and one another into the most authentic versions of ourselves. May it be so, and amen. <laughs>